Almost. Here we go. Finally. Ah, oh, we're live. We've had some technical difficulties, but we're back. And welcome to the guide to existence. We will attempt this week to explore maybe some of the mitzvahs of the Parsha through the lens of Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah. And being that the holidays, that the Torah portions that always come right after a holiday, always you have very little time to repair. So today we're going to totally wing it. And let's hope that we come up with something good. Um, ladies and gentlemen, let us begin. Okay. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Naso. This week's Parsha almost always falls out after Shavuos. And coincidentally, or not, it is the longest Parsha in the Torah. Okay. So I want to try to figure out what the possible message is of this week's Parsha coming directly after Shavuos. What do we take with us from Shavuos? We talked a lot about the receiving of the Torah on Mount Sinai and the inspiration of Shavuos. But what do we do with that inspiration? What happens, as I titled this class, the morning after? What happens the day after Shavuos? What happens to all that inspiration? What does it do to us? What's the point of it all? So let's try to uh, come up with something uh, to answer that question. I want to make the question a little bit stronger. One of my students came over on Shavuos, and he asked what I thought was a great question. He said, Rabbi, why are we celebrating Shavuos? Now, why is that a good question? Because... The reality is, is that the Shavuos that happened on the 6th or 7th of the month of Sivan was actually ended in disaster. Why? Jewish people received the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down 40 days later with the two tablets. And what happens? You're muted. He breaks them. Why does he break them? worshiping a cow i mean like come on you see god face to face and then you start worshiping a cow what's with these people um for a deeper explanation of the golden calf i refer you to my class last year on parshas veaschana uh, a few months from now uh, a year ago but Why are we celebrating? He So he said even better. So the classic question I hear is, why are we celebrating a receiving of the Torah, which wasn't the permanent receiving of the Torah? Those tablets were smashed. That time around didn't last. It had to be, Hashem wanted to destroy the Jewish people. Moses had to go up and pray for another 40 days and 40 nights to get us forgiven. And then he, so the, the, the cow, the golden calf was worshipped. The tablets were smashed on the 17th of Tammuz. That's coming up in a in a few weeks from now. Begins the mourning period of the three weeks where we mourn the destruction of the temple, which took place between that time. It's a time of destruction for all the generations between the 17th of Thomas and the 9th of Av, Tishabav, when the temple was actually destroyed both times. Moses goes up, prays for 40 days to get us forgiven, comes back down on Rosh Chodesh El. Rosh Chodesh El, he comes back down. And we are forgiven. 
And then he goes back up for another 40 days and comes back down, this time with the second two tablets. On what day does he come back down this time? Yom Kippur. So really Yom Kippur is the day. Yom Kippur is the day of really celebrating the giving of the Torah, the one that stuck. So why are we making such a big deal about the first time around? And in fact, some say that the reason we celebrate Simcha's Torah, Sukkot time, is in commemoration of the second tablet which were given on Yom Kippur. We just delay that celebration for a few days till at the end of Sukkot. So that's a classic question, but my student made it even better. He said, not only does it not make sense, we're not celebrating the real giving of the Torah, but it's even worse to slap in the face because that first engagement ended in disaster. He said, it's, it's like if a bride cheats on the groom on the, on the wedding day, how much are you going to celebrate that wedding day? Now, even if he forgives her and takes her back, are you going to celebrate on that wedding day? No. Is, good question, right? It's a great question. And the question also, so we want to know how do we take, what do we take with us from Shavuos? What do we do the day after receiving the Torah? But also what, what does the Jewish people do the day after when things seem to just go wrong? So let's look at some of the themes in the Parsha and see if we can an answer this question. I'm going to run through them all and... Uh, we'll see if some of them can be used to help us. So the parsha begins talking about the the Levi, the Levites, my people, and their job in the tabernacle. Then it goes on to the sanctity of the camp. That if a person has certain uh, omissions, they have to be sent out of the camp of the the inner encampment, which was called the Machani Shechina, the encampment of the divine presence, and they had to go out of the second encampment, which is the camp of the Levites, and they had to go into the third encampment. That's interesting. Okay. Then we have a discussion about if somebody one second. Yeah. If somebody stole from somebody and the Talmud explains we're talking about someone who didn't have any children who got stolen from and it's specifically like a convert to Judaism who wasn't who didn't have any other family and someone stole from him and then that guy died so how do you return the money if you decide to return you, you decide to do good again and but you can't return it so what do you do so it says you should return it to a Kohen to a priest and you have to make a confession and from here we learn the idea of confessing uh, what's called vidui, which is a, basically saying over what we did wrong, not to a priest. That's Catholicism. The confession is between us and God. You have to say over, when, and that's this part of the tshuva process. When we do something wrong, is we have to say over what we did and ask forgiveness. So that we learn it specifically here. It's very interesting by the stealing from a convert why specifically did we learn this idea of confession over here next we have the parsha of sota what's the parsha of sota very interesting parsha 
um, sota is if a man is suspectful that his wife might uh, be messing around behind his back and he warns her do not be alone with the neighbor i do not want to see you alone with the neighbor and then he catches them alone so the torah gives a very complicated process very strange process in order to exonerate her now there's no witnesses that she did anything wrong but the husband is very suspicious and very jealous so he doesn't want to take her back so the Torah says you go to the temple and you go through a certain ritual. Now, what would you say the worst sin is in the Torah? Or at least up there. Yeah, we've said idolatry, adultery, and murder. Murder. But if you had to choose one that's like the worst. What do you think is the worst? Bingo. I, I might say that as well. How, why might I say that? That idolatry is the worst? Very good. In fact, it's not just the Ten Commandments. It is the first of the two Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. And the second is don't worship any other gods besides me. But on top of that, it's the number one sin, so to speak, don't do, that's mentioned over and over and over again throughout the Torah. And it's the one that we keep coming back to. What's with that? Now, you and I, we don't understand the attraction of worshiping idols, but it apparently was a very strong attraction once upon a time. So if I wanted to, if I wanted to take a um, a metaphor that would exhibit the visual image of worshiping an idol, right, if I wanted to depict that metaphorically, so let me see if I if I thought of a better way to express this question. Um, I'm not sure I did. The antithesis, right? Uh, adultery, adultery and idolatry are essentially the same thing, right? Adultery and idolatry, they're both being unfaithful. Adultery is being unfaithful to your spouse. Idolatry is being unfaithful to God, right? So let me find this one second. So the concept of both, I'm not sure how I came to this, but I wrote that the best expression of this, if I were to visually express me disgracing God's existence publicly, okay, like worshiping an idol, essentially saying there is no God, I'm worshiping this other idol. So another way that I could express that visually would be to basically take God's name and rip it up in public. Right, essentially saying there is no God. I'm ripping up God's name. That's called it. That's that's a, that. That would be a a depiction of this. What's known as a chil Hashem, a disgrace of the name, literally, of God's name. So, in fact, um, 
there was once a friend of mine who said that as a kid his father was taught that you uh you can't disgrace god's name you can't bring it into the bathroom and if it's written somewhere you have to bury it and the kid took my friend's father when he was a kid took a permanent marker and he wrote god's name on the urinal in the bathroom terrible thing right and he said that they actually had to take out the urinal and bury it Poor guy, but he was a kid. I don't know. Anyway, so, and yet, when the man suspects his wife of cheating on him, they go to the temple, and the Kohen writes God's name on a piece of paper and erases God's name into some water, and she drinks that liquid, and it's supposed to exonerate her and prove her innocence. Says the Talmud, you see how great peace is between husband and wife that god's willing to erase his name to bring about peace it's an amazing thing what's the significance there unbelievable then we have the parsha of a nazir somebody it says who saw this woman being taken through the this this uh this ceremony he might have some sort of impure thoughts about her and therefore, he should become a Nazar. What's a Nazar? Someone who wants extra level of holiness has to swear himself off of wine. No wine. As we all know, alcoholic products, and the main one back in the day at least, was wine, bring a person to do things that they don't want to do. They cause you to be a little bit more inhibited. So therefore, if a person wants an extra level of holiness, they should stop eating wine the nazar does other stuff too he doesn't come in contact with dead bodies he doesn't cut his hair nazar shimshon is the most famous one but there are others throughout time so that's the nazar and the nazar is called kodesh it's called holy and the talmud said he's also called a sinner and none of the opinions in the talmud says why is he called a sinner because he swore off wine what do you mean that's why he's called holy no Holy, he might be, but he's also a sinner because he didn't enjoy the world. So we see that there's an idea of holiness involves some degree of separation, but not too much separation. Too much separation is called a sinner because we want, we're in this world to enjoy the world, to take pleasure from this world. And finally, last two things, we have the Berchas Kohanim, the threefold blessing that the Kohanim say, if you live in Israel, they say every single morning, they bless the congregation. If you live outside the land of Israel and you're Ashkenazi, they do it only on the holidays. So we just heard it in Shul, this Shavuos. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he turn his face to you and show you favor. And may he raise his face towards you and grant you peace. That is the Berkus Kohanim, known as the threefold blessing, mentions God's name three times. Again, is there significance that we can somehow learn something from? I'm sure there is. Will we tonight? We'll see. And lastly, is the offerings that the pre the 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 the, 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 the 
leaders of the tribes decided to bring a um, charitable gifts to inaugurate the tabernacle. The the we have now arrived time wise one year after the standing at Mount Sinai, a year after the exodus from Egypt, and now we're coming around the second time, and it's Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the month that we come out of Egypt. So one year later, the completion of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is the tabernacle that went with us in the desert. And it took, according to some opinions, the commandment came to build a Mishkan only after the sin of the golden calf. Before the sin of the golden calf, there was no ideal of us having a Mishkan. Before that, we were supposed to be a Mishkan, each and every one of us. But after the sin of the golden calf, we need an, an intermediary. We need like a centerpiece in the amongst the Jewish people where God's presence would be most tangible. So sort of like a mini Mount Sinai that would travel with us in the desert so comes the commandment to build the Mishkan. In fact, according to the Vilna Gon, there's an amazing thing that why do we sell on Sukkot? We celebrate the clouds of glory that surround the Jewish people. Why do we celebrate that on Sukkot? Those clouds were with us from the time we left Egypt. So the Vilna Gon explains that those clouds left us after the sin of the golden calf. We lost this divine presence that was around us. When we started building the Mishkan, the, the sanctuary, only then did the clouds come back. And when did we start building it? On Sukkot. So Sukkot is the day the clouds came back. So for Sukkot, we celebrate the second time around that the clouds return. Now I have one more question. Well, this will conclude our questions. That we have a holiday celebrating the giving of the Torah. It's perplexing. We want to understand it. Now the Vilna Golan says we have Sukkot, which celebrates the return of those clouds when the tabernacle starts getting built. But why don't we have a holiday celebrating the completion of the tabernacle? When we finished building the Mishkan, then Hashem's presence dwelled amongst us. It was an amazing thing. Why do we have no commemoration of that? It's very puzzling to me. I don't have an answer. So, okay. So those are our questions. So for some reason, by the clouds, we celebrate when they came back the second time, but with the giving of the Torah, we celebrate the first one. Why? What's the significance? Okay, so I'll share with you one possible idea, and then we'll go through and see if somehow all these different ideas can come together. But I had an amazing incident with two of my kids the other day. Um, two of my kids, the way it works with kids is let's see if you know the answer to this question. Which kids are always going to have the most sibling rivalry? If you have a family of four kids or six kids, which kids are always going to have the sibling rivalry? Too closest in age. So the oldest two have sibling rivalry with each other. Then the, the, the second kid has sibling rivalry with two on both sides, right? With the oldest and the one under him. Then the next one has above and below. Next one above and below. And the youngest only has above and doesn't have anyone below. Right? It always works that way. And typically, the the greater degree of sibling rivalry is going to be towards the one below you. Right? Because that's the one that stole your limelight. Yeah? So, so two of my kids were were fighting a lot. And the older one was just really picking on the younger one. like. Above and beyond, much more than usual, and 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 we spoke to, to to the older one a bunch of times. Nothing changed. 
And just just yesterday on the last day of Shavuos, I was speaking to that kid and the kid said, you know, I'm feeling a little down lately about something. Uh, what can I do about it? And I said, well, there's a few things you can do if you're feeling down. I said, one is you could probably go get some more sleep because you're probably tired or you can eat, go to the bathroom, or maybe you're getting a cold or maybe it's allergies. That's number one. I said, number two, maybe there's a thought you're having that's that's disturbing you. So you can explore your thoughts and try to figure out what thought is bothering you. I said, or you can distract yourself from thinking about that thought, or you can do a mitzvah. I said, if you do a mitzvah, that's going to help you to just feel good and positive, and and that's that's the best. That's a good way to get over it. And so then the kid got up, grabbed a whole bunch of candies, and went up to the kid who had was the one below, who they were having the issues, and gave the candies and apologized. It was so beautiful, and I saw the other kid, the younger kid's eyes light up, and actually started tearing with such a big smile like it was like the best day ever that was probably one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen so worth it so worth it and i keep complimenting that kid so i was complimenting that kid the other day i said you did one of the best mitzvahs i've ever seen you don't know how much you changed the other kid's life and one and the one older than that one was listening so now there's a third kid that was listening in, and the third kid said why are you praising that why is that worthy of being praised? Because the kid went and was mean. Now he should get praised for doing a good thing. You hear the question? What? Why should you go praising a kid who was mean just because the kid apologized? So I should go be mean in order to get and then apologize in order to get praised? So I said, I said, no, it doesn't work that way. So it says very clearly that if a person does a, a sin on condition to do tshuva in order to repent can't do tshuva it doesn't work can't say i'm going to do this today i'm going to i'm going to go steal today and tomorrow i'll apologize it's, it's not, it can't it doesn't work that way you can only really want to sin that, then if you want to if you got to be all in the sin then you can apologize but you can't half-heartedly sin on condition that you apologize that's that means you 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 don't really if you're sinning already thinking about the apology that's really evil do you get it? If you sin not thinking about the apology, that means you're just so overcome with with desire for the thing that you want to do wrong that you're not even thinking about God. Okay, I'll I'll tell you. Um, we learned from the parsha of Sota that we just discussed. The 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 Talmud says that a person doesn't sin until a ruach, a spirit of shtus, which means stu stupidity, enters into them. And we, we actually learn this from, from the language of sota, which is, which is related to stupidity, foolishness, uh, waywardness, is, is that a person sins only when they, they become temporarily insane. Right? You can't do the wrong thing if you're sane. Do you get it? If you're sane, you don't cheat on your husband if you love your husband. The only reason you cheat on your husband is if you're temporarily insane or you have problems in your relationship. Right? So if assuming we have a healthy relationship with God, 
So why would we go and steal from another person? Or why would we go and eat something that's not kosher if we understand that that's not what we're supposed to do? The answer is because we're temporarily insane. We temporarily become obsessed with the desire for the thing that we want, that we forget. We forget with the clarity of what we believe in and our values. That's it. There's no other way to sin without becoming temporarily insane. If you believe in, if you believe God doesn't want you speaking Lush and Hara, speaking badly about another person, then how come you just did it 10 minutes ago and you're going to do it an hour from now? The answer is, is because in those moments, it's so, you have such a desire to speak badly because it's so, feels so good to talk badly about your friends behind their back that you become temporary insane and you forget what you really believe in. That's it. No one does it on purpose. It's very rare. And so the truth is, is that we learn the, one of the Hasidic masters say, says, why do we learn the idea of confession, of vidui, of confessing our sins to God from this case of stealing in this week's Parsha? said, because all sins are stealing. All sins. Because whenever we sin, what we're essentially doing is we're forgetting that who gave you those arms with which you're about to steal from someone with? Who gave you that mouth that you're about to speak badly about someone? Or that those teeth that you're going to go eat the non-kosher food with? Or your body that's going to indulge in something that you're not allowed to do? The answer is God gave you those things, that energy. So when every sin is a level of stealing from God. Because it's it, it's disregarding the blessings that he gave you. So, in fact, the, the Talmud says that, that somebody, a thief, who makes a blessing, if you make a blessing on stolen food, it's like cursing God. Because you stole the food. How then can you make a blessing to God, which is very, very interesting. It's a little ironic because the Talmud says that anyone who eats without making a blessing, kosher food, is stealing from God. Because the food's not yours. The food belongs to God. When you make the blessing, now it becomes yours. That gives you permission to eat it. So eating without a blessing is stealing from God, and a thief who steals and then makes a blessing is cursing God. Okay, because all all... All sins have an element of stealing because it's disregarding the blessings that we have. And we can't sin unless we become temporarily insane. So if you were to sin deliberately knowing that I'll do tshuva tomorrow, it means you weren't insane at this moment. It means you were very aware that what you were doing is wrong. That one you can't do tshuva on. At least it's very hard. All other sins, it's because we're, we weren't thinking clearly. And so the next day when we come to our senses, oh my gosh, what did I do? Torah says there's a recipe. You say, I'm sorry. You confess. You speak out what you did and you ask forgiveness. You feel bad about it. You make a co commitment not to do it again. You pay back whatever you stole if that's possible. You make amends, you ask forgiveness from the person, and you are forgiven. That's the process of tshuva. Actually, interesting, the, the Talmud says uh, a question. There's a contradiction over here. In the blessing, the Berkus Kohanim, the threefold blessing of the Kohanim that we mentioned, 
it says something interesting. It says, Yisa Hashem Penav Elecha. May God turn his face towards you. Yisa Panim in Hebrew means favoritism. And yet it says earlier in the Torah, God doesn't show favoritism. God judges everyone fairly. So how do we deal with this contradiction? So says the Talmud, God doesn't show favoritism when it comes to sins that you do with another person. There God holds you to the strictest accountants. Why? Because you hurt another person. You do not get forgiven until you ask forgiveness from that person. And you pay them back for what you broke, damage. You build the trust. But when does God, yes, show favoritism? Sins that we do between us and him. There, he's very quick to forgive. All we have to do is tell him, I'm sorry. That's it. He quickly forgives. So it's much easier to do tshuva for the sins we do against God. Because he shows favoritism for the Jewish people, for us, for all everyone who comes to him with sincerity. It might be much harder to get your husband to forgive you after the affair or your wife, etc. That, that's much harder because humans have a much harder time forgiving than God does. So I said to my son, I said, what do you mean? What do you mean? It's not right for me to praise the good behavior that the child apologized. I said, what does the Talmud say? The Talmud says that the place where a balachuva stands, a righteous person can't even get to. What's a balachuva? A righteous person is someone who's never sinned. A tzaddik gamor, someone who never sinned. A Balachuva is someone who did sin and repaired what they broke. Talmud says is on a much higher level. Because they were away and they came closer. They had to work through the embarrassment of saying, I'm sorry, I messed up. Much greater. It's much greater to be a Balachuva than to be a Tzaddik Gomer. So the Talmud tells us, this week's Parsha, right? A person could make a mistake. This Sota, she was told by her husband, don't be alone with the, with the guy. And then she went alone with him. And she gets, she goes to the temple, and God says, erase my name just to bring peace between this husband and wife. That's how much I'm willing to take my name and rub it in the dirt in order to bring two people together. That's really the attribute of Aaron, Hakohen. Aaron Hakohen, it says in Perkeavos, was Ohev Sholem, Verodev Sholem. He ran, he loved peace and he ran after peace. It says that he used to go between two people who were fighting, husband and wife or two friends, and he'd say, Do you, that other guy just said something really nice about you. And he was willing to actually lie in order to bring about peace, which the Torah says you're allowed to do. You're allowed to lie for the sake of peace in order to bring people back together. Unbelievable thing. So, so God says, you can erase my name, rub my name in the dirt in order to bring husband and wife together. And what happens if the wife is found to be innocent? Talmud says, and the Torah says she gets a blessing to have children or to have beautiful children. And why does she get a blessing? What's the problem here? 
She did something wrong. She shouldn't have been alone with the guy. Her husband said, please don't be alone with Bob the neighbor. I don't like the way you're looking at him. And as a good wife, she wants to respect her husband's wishes. But she doesn't. She goes against her husband. She goes alone with Bob. What a terrible thing. And yet the Torah says she gets a blessing. How could it be? How could it be? The answer is she was alone with Bob. And perhaps her intentions were wrong. But she didn't go all the way. She didn't, they didn't do anything. She was alone with him. Nothing happened. For that, she gets a blessing. Because it's, it's, we make mistakes. We make mistakes. Don't think because you did something wrong means you can't come close again. No, you can. You can come close. And that's what the Torah is telling us is that she gets, she, she's even closer now to her husband. Because the whole process is coming just to exonerate her and show she did not show she did something wrong, but it's not what you think happened. Maybe she wanted to, didn't happen. She gets a blessing. Because in this world, we don't get judged for our mistakes. We get judged for our ability to rectify those mistakes. That's really where the strength of a human being lies and our ability. And that's where our greatness lies is not in our ability to not flaw. We all have flaws. It's our ability to fix those flaws. What do we do the morning after we fail? How do we respond the next day when we wake up and we come back to our senses? Do we beg forgiveness? Do we make amends? Or we want to do something wrong and we didn't doesn't mean we can't do right tomorrow. And perhaps that's, that's the message of, of Nazir. The Nazir, he goes to the other extreme. He has to, he has to make right. He might have had some, uh, some drinking issues. So he stops drinking. Stops drinking. But the goal is not to be not drinking. The goal is moderation. Come back to the middle. It's holy to stop drinking for a little while, but he's also called a sinner. Because the goal is not to be to stop drinking. The goal is to continue indulging and enjoying the world, but in the right way with self-control. I heard a nice idea today that that's, that's the message of the Berchus Kohanim, that when the Kohen gives the blessing to, to the congregation, he says, God, blessed are you, God, who commanded us with the holiness of Aaron to bless the Jewish people with love. That's what he says. And on a similar note, it says here, now why does it say with love in the blessing? We don't say that in any other blessing. That blessing has to be with love. It says here in, in the actual language of the Torah, it says, Daber el Aaron, speak to Aaron, Valbanov, and to his sons, Lamar, Kosevarhu, Espen Israel, Amor Lehem. Thusly, you should bless the Jewish people and say to them, God should bless you and, keep, and guard you. But I, I heard a great idea that, that one of the Hasidic masters says, Kosevarhu, like this, you should bless the children of Israel, like this, however they are. However they are, that's how you should bless them. You shouldn't want them to be different than they are. You shouldn't say, I'm only going to give you a blessing if you, you're good. No, bless them the way they are. And perhaps we can understand 
that that the blessing in the actual language of the blessing how does a blessing work how does a blessing work at all how does it how is it that i can give you a blessing and now suddenly you're going to have good stuff that you weren't getting before so says the nesiva shalom one of the contemporary hasidic masters says the whole way a blessing works is because of love what i'm doing is i'm showing i care about you and that act of me caring enough about you to give you a blessing and to pray for you is what God sees that and says, I want to be part of this. All right. There's a famous, there's a famous story that there were, there were, there were two friends, very good friends, Jews. And they ended up growing, they grew up in a town together and one of them became a merchant and moved to another country. One of them lived in Greece. The other one lived in Turkey. And there was always wars between the Greeks and the Turks for many hundreds of years. And one day they were visiting with each other and the Greek one was visiting in Turkey and the, the suddenly Sultan's guards surround the house and they accuse him of being a Greek spy. And they say, you're going to be hung, capital punishment in the, in the palace, in front of the entire kingdom, you're going to be hung. Now the friend comes in front of the king. And he says, your majesty, please, please let him go. The king says, no, I believe he's a spy. Can't let him go. He says, at least let him say goodbye to his family, to his wife and kids. They don't even know what happened to him. He's been gone for months. The king says, let him go? You mean I should let him go home and say goodbye to his wife and kids? He'll never come back. Says the friend, I will be in his place. If he doesn't come back in three months on the day, hang me instead. King says, okay, such good friends, fine. I'll, I'll take it. So he says, go back. They keep the friend in prison now for three months, waiting to see whether he'll come back. The day of the hanging arrives, the friend is nowhere in sight. So the king takes the the the, the loyal Turkish citizen to the front, to the court, and they put the noose around his neck, and they say, he's going to be hung in in place of the Greek spy who escaped back to Greece and we we're so stupid, we let him go, but he's going to die now in his place. And just then there's a commotion and they see, there he is. The Greek friend is coming back. Your majesty, I'm here. And the friend says, no, no, no. Noose is around my neck. Kill me. He says, no, no, no. Kill me. No, kill me. And the king says, hold on a second. Hold on. What is going on here? You want to die? He said, yes. So why do you want to die? He said, because I love my friend so much. Let him go back to his family. And what about you? You came back? You could have been free. He said, no, I came back because it's my friend. I promised him I'd come back. The king says, you know what? Such a friendship. I want to be part of that friendship. And the king lets them both go. And he says, as long, I'll let you go on condition that I get to be your third friend. That's what Hashem says when he sees us living in peace with each other. When a when there's love, there's God. And, and that's, that's the message of perhaps the blessing that the coin says, I have to bless them with, with love. If I love them, then my blessing's going to work. But you could say also, you can read it a different way. Bless the Jewish people. Bless them with what? Bless them with love. That's the greatest blessing is that you should have love. And that's ultimately what peace is. Peace is that there should be that we should come together as one. 
That's the message of the Sota. In fact, the Talmud says that when a husband and wife live together, when there's peace, Hashem is with them. When there's not peace, it's a, it's a raging fire. How do we understand this statement of, of the Talmud? The, the, the word ish, man, and woman, isha, are essentially the same words. There's just one letter differences. Ish is Aleph Yud Shin. Isha is Aleph Shin He. They both have Aleph and Shin together. What does Aleph and Shin spell? Ish. What is Ish? Fire. The, ish, the man and the woman have fire together. What are the other letters that are different? Is Yud and He. God's name. Half of God's name, Yud He, is one of the names of God. So when there's peace together, the Yud and the He unite, and God's name is with them. When there's not peace, when there's strife between them, when the God is not with them, when they're not living in a spiritual way, the Yud and the He come off, and you're left with Aish, fire. And the, his fire and her fire burn each other up. So, so we see the greatness of the idea of, of peace. So that's, that's the message that I said to my kid, is that when a person does the wrong thing and then they return, the greatest possible level that you can achieve because you're literally showing that you've come to your senses and you're making amends, especially when it's between two people. There it requires us to now bridge the gaps and to make peace, to come together. Peace doesn't exist when you're not having problems. That's not called peace. That's called lack of problems. Peace is when you do have problems, when you have tension, when they're opposites that don't want to come together, that don't get along, and you bridge the gaps. That's peace because that shows completion. That shows oneness and unity. Unity is expressed when opposites come together, when differences are bridged in order to create unity. That's the, that's the Hebrew word shalom, which really means shalem, completion, unity, oneness. That's the word of peace. That's the, what peace really means. So with that, perhaps we can understand the message of Shavuos, that we're celebrating Shavuos, but we cheated on God the next 40 days later. What a terrible thing. So why are we celebrating? It sounds like a slap in God's face. The answer is, is we're celebrating it because we're remembering. We're remembering that God takes us back. He's willing to throw his name in the mud for us to bring peace between man and wife, all the more so between us and him. He's willing to show favoritism when it comes to sins against him. He's will wipe it clean. All we have to do is say, I'm sorry. We're celebrating the Shavuos where we messed up because that's the message that we want to walk away with is that God never throws us away. He'll never abandon us. He'll never forget us. It's we're 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 married forever. We're married forever. And that that perhaps is the message. Now, why do we not celebrate the the Mishkan, the completion of the Mishkan, which takes place in this week's parsha? The princes come and they begin giving their their gifts to the Mishkan. Why don't we celebrate that? So, perhaps uh, I I don't have an answer yet. I don't have an answer, but perhaps the message is is that the Mishkan symbolizes the home that we built for God. Right? The Shavuos is the wedding. The Mishkan is the home. 
Why don't we celebrate the building of the home? Why are we celebrating the wedding, the wedding that went wrong? We all know the wedding is unimportant, right? They say Shavuos is like a wedding between us and God. They say, they say who, what, who, at a wedding, how do you tell the difference? How do you tell who the, the bride, the, the groom is? He's dressed up just like everyone else. He's wearing a suit and tie. Maybe he's wearing a tux, maybe, but he doesn't look so different than everyone else. The bride, you could tell. But how do you tell who the groom is? The answer is everyone's dressed up in a suit and tie at the wedding. You tell who the, bride, the groom is because he's the one who goes home with the bride at the end of the day. It's not enough to be married to God. It's what do we do with that marriage the next day? Do we continue to build and to grow, which includes falling and failing and stumbling and cheating? Do we make amends? Do we fix it up? Do we clean it up? Do we come back together? That's the sign of a true marriage. We don't commemorate. We commemorate the wedding and not the marriage the next day, which is the building of the home together, because that process continues forever. There's one wedding. The marriage is the rest of your life together. And that's symbolized by ups and downs, but most importantly, by building and fixing the, ma- the mistakes and the breaks. How does that sound? We should all be blessed to, con- to grow in our connection to each other, to find, to, to grow in love and peace and to continue that relationship with, with God and with those important to us in our lives by recognizing that it's okay to fall, it's okay to stumble, it's okay to, to make mistakes as long as we fix them the next morning. All right.